Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are breaking down a hectic 48 hours of NBA news, including the latest postseason games and head coaching changes, plus which Stanley Cup semifinal series has a chance of going the longest, and assessing the MLB's latest crackdown on foreign substances. It's episode 28 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Back once again on Thursday, June 17, 2021. We're going on to episode 28 of the Let Me Speak podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Up here in Swampscott, Massachusetts, things are getting very exciting. Hope everyone has a happy Father's Day. Me personally, I'm getting excited. I've got my sister's wedding coming up in a few weeks, which we'll talk about in next week's episode as there's going to be a little bit of a hiatus, but we'll get into that when the time comes but obviously there's so much news going around in the world of sports that there's no time to waste we got to get right into it and really most of the chaos has come from the NBA and so we've got a whole segment devoted on the NBA normally I'm talking just about the postseason but there is so much going on outside of these postseason games that we have to get into but obviously you have to talk about the playoffs and what's gone on in the last 48 hours, especially after last night when looking at the Hawks and the 76ers. They had their Game 5 last night, and boy, did Philadelphia put a choke job on. They blew a 26-point lead, and Atlanta came back to take advantage in that series. They take home court with Game 6 in Atlanta tomorrow night now let's just talk about what I saw in that game Trey Young is a monster an absolute monster 39 points 10 of 23 shooting 17 of 19 from the free throw line okay Trey Young if he's not a superstar he will be after this series regardless of what happens in in this series if the Hawks get eliminated or not but it's not so much to me looking at the Atlanta side it's more of what the 76ers did not do and what they did not do was give support to their MVP which is kind of funny because in recent years for Philly it's been can Joel Embiid take that next step and go to the next level He's showing that in this postseason. I mean, he was the MVP runner-up. And look at what he did last night. 37 points on 13 rebounds. And he got some great scoring assistance from the other Curry brother, Seth Curry. 36 points on 7-12 from 3. But the 76ers totally blew this opportunity. And those two guys are not to blame for it. Embiid and Curry get the pass. I mean, the Sixers had 16 total turnovers, five more than Atlanta, 
And this is the really telling stat. 23 of 38 from the free throw line. Okay, when you look at the score in that game, that's a three-point difference. If you even make five of those, you win that game. So that is totally on Philadelphia. But there are two players that I'm going to blame for this. Because it's not necessarily, like I said, Embiid, Curry get the pass. But there are two players to blame. The first one is totally obvious. And that is Ben Simmons. Okay, remember when he was drafted in 2016? About he was the talk of, oh, he's the next LeBron. He's got the size to be a handler and a point guard. But there's one problem. He can't shoot the freaking ball. He has no outside shot. He only put up four field goal attempts and made two of them. But this is a more telling stat. At the free throw line, he was 4 of 14. 4 of 14. You even put half of those in, your team wins that game. Ben Simmons right now is the reason this Philadelphia team hasn't gotten out of this series yet. And honestly, they should be lucky that it's a six-game series. Because if Joel Embiid is not scoring the way he is, and if this offense isn't the way it is, then this team is dead in the water and Ben Simmons would be to blame. Ben Simmons is still the guy to blame. Because until he develops that outside shot and he learns to make free throws, this team is not going to go anywhere. So Simmons is just becoming a liability for this Philadelphia team. The second guy, I will say, not so much a consistent disappointment, but just more so in last night's game, and that's Tobias Harris. I mean, Harris was 2 of 11 from the field. 2 of 11. And that's your second offensive option right there. I mean, it can be different when you have Seth Curry shooting well from three-point land and you just keep giving him the ball. But there's a reason you spent the money to keep Tobias Harris on your roster. That's your second offensive option right there. And if he's putting up great numbers, and if Curry's putting up great numbers along with Embiid, then this Sixers team should have no problem with Atlanta. I mean, this series should be over. I understand that Philadelphia doesn't have Danny Green, but he was more of a liability in that series than even Ben Simmons was. He wasn't able to put up shots and make shots. So Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris... Last night did not help Philadelphia in any way whatsoever, regardless of if they're great defenders or not. I say the the bigger disappointment is Ben Simmons because he is this all-star, but he has to shoot the ball. He has to get an outside shot. If he doesn't, Philadelphia's over. And Tobias Harris just has to have a better shooting night. And that means Philadelphia's got their backs against the wall, and they're asking Embiid, who still is playing on a torn meniscus, which it doesn't even look like it on the floor. He's still playing with a torn meniscus. And if you're asking an injured Embiid to do more, then there's a problem. Then there's a problem. And honestly, I would totally not be surprised if Atlanta comes out of this series. I would not be surprised in the least bit. And honestly, I might even pick them because, you know, People give a lot of crap to that Hawks fans because they don't really show up in the regular season. But when it comes time for the postseason, they are ready to go. They're ready to go. And I think that crowd is going to be a big difference maker. And I'm even going to go out on a limb and say Atlanta is going to wrap up this series on Friday night. I think the Hawks are going to pull the upset and make their way to the Eastern Conference Finals. Like I said last week. 
This Atlanta team is just last year's Miami Heat when they had that run in the bubble. Only this time, they're heading to the conference finals with a crowd intact. But of course, that's just one series in the Eastern Conference. The entire basketball world was talking about what happened two nights ago from the Brooklyn Nets when Kevin Durant pulled out one of the most impressive playoff performances that many have seen. Just keep this in mind. He played all 48 minutes. All 48 minutes. No Kyrie Irving. He had that sprained ankle. Status for the rest of the series is in question. He had a limited James Harden. Limited James Harden, who didn't even play that well. And they come back from 17 down versus this Milwaukee team. He puts up 49 points on 16 of 23 shooting. 17 rebounds, 10 assists. I mean, for those who think Kevin Durant is soft and all that, you cannot argue his talent on the court. This guy, in this moment, in this postseason, is the best player in the entire world. The best player in the entire world. I I still think that distinction is LeBron James because he's so unstoppable. But in this moment, out of all the teams and all the players remaining, this guy is the best. I mean, he's making P.J. Tucker look foolish. He's making Giannis look foolish on defense. And considering what Brooklyn has to do with all those injuries that I just mentioned, talk about stepping up in the biggest way possible. I mean, we question so much about the depth of Brooklyn. I don't think you need to worry about the depth when you've got this guy pulling out great performances like that. Now, again, this is... I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago about Milwaukee just struggling in terms of their decision-making. This is a team who has size down low and guys who are very difficult to guard, like Giannis. Okay, so they have to continue to attack the paint. That's all they have to do is continue to attack the paint. Because, like I mentioned, they were like plus 40 in that. They were plus 40 And they just kind of went away with it. They went back to the three-point line. Giannis shouldn't be taking so many threes. And defensively, they're going to have to play so much better. So much better. Because Durant, you know, many were thinking P.J. Tucker's in his head when his bodyguard came out to defend him. That's clearly not the case. But, I mean, come on. The Bucs were 52-32 to in points in the paint. Why do they continue to live and die by the three? I get the shot 40%, but they only made 13 three-pointers. If this Bucks team just stays the course, if Coach Bud continues to attack the paint and not rely on the three ball so much, then you win that game. Then you win that game. So, again, I'm not taking anything away from Brooklyn and what Kevin Durant did, but... Similar to Philadelphia, this is Milwaukee blowing their opportunity because they don't know really just how to I'm not I'm not gonna totally take guesses, but it just feels like when they find a strength, they don't know how to hold on to that strength and continue to push forward. And I'll even go out on a limb and say that tonight, which is when we're recording, tonight Brooklyn should wrap up this series. I don't care if it's in Milwaukee. And I don't care if James Harden is limited. But Milwaukee has shown. I understand they won both of their home games on the fl- on the on their home court. 
But Brooklyn, you have to think, is going to come out of this series. I, th- I think if Brooklyn doesn't win it tonight, I think they're going to win it on Saturday night. And I think they're going to find themselves in the Eastern Conference Finals. That's what I think. Because Milwaukee, unless they totally do a 180 in their strategy and continue to attack the paint and not live and die by the freaking three-pointer, then they're good. And if Giannis steps up and gets more than 34 points, if he stays with Kevin Durant in terms of scoring, then Milwaukee's got a chance. But I just don't see it with this Milwaukee team. I think Brooklyn is going to find their way out of this series into the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, of course, there was another game last night in shifting conferences, and that's the top-seeded Jazz, the five-seeded Clippers, or sorry, four-seeded Clippers. And obviously the big news came before the game, when Kawhi Leonard was announced that he was out indefinitely with a knee injury, which we'll get into in a little bit. But even without him, L.A. was able to take that 3-2 advantage thanks to PG-13. Paul George had to answer the bell, and he absolutely did. 37 points, 16 rebounds, 5 assists. There was one guy who had to step up in Kawhi Leonard's absence, and it was Paul George. George took on the offensive load and did that times 10. I mean, it was so hard for him to even put up 23 points in certain games this postseason. And here he is controlling the offense and being a playmaker. All right? Getting Marcus Morris involved with 25 points. Getting Reggie Jackson in there with 22 points. I am very impressed by the guy who anointed himself playoff P because he showed up last night. And really, it's just a hobbled Utah team. It's a hobbled Utah team because Donovan Donovan Mitchell, I don't know if he's still bothered by that injured ankle, but he's going to have to do more than 21 points last night, especially with Mike Conley out. I mean, that's your starting point guard right there. Obviously, Bogdanovich put up 32, and Gobert had another double-double. But this offense runs through Mitchell. Okay, and he struggled last night. 21 points, 6 of 19 shooting, and 4 of 14 from 3. He's going to have to do much better than that if Utah wants to stay alive. And it's going to be a little tough. They're going on the road in L.A. The game's going to take place tomorrow night. And if Donovan Mitchell does not have a sensational scoring night, then this Utah team is done. This Utah team is done. I'm still holding out faith. You know, it's not like the... First series that I just mentioned between Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and Philly, Atlanta, where I think it's over. I think this is still a coin toss. I think it's still up in the air. I think Utah is capable of locking down defensively, shutting down Paul George, and it really depends on those other scores for the Clippers. It really depends on those other scores because we've seen that role players play better. Role players play better at home. And so... Utah is just going to have to shut them out. Shut them out. Don't let Paul George go nuts. And don't let these other guys get ahead of you. And also, Jordan Clarkson's going to have to do more than 15 points off the bench. It, it was just a struggle offensively last night for Utah. And there are going to be games like that. It came at the worst time, with it being a Game 5 in a 2-2 series. But I think Utah, this team, can bounce back. And depending on if Mike Conley can come back, if he comes back, then I'll put all my money on Utah. I'll put all my money on Utah if he's back. 
But of course, we don't even need to talk about another series in the Western Conference because it's already over, and that's Phoenix sweeping the Denver Nuggets. And I think the biggest X factor is the guy who's not even going to be on the floor, it looks like, for the first part of the Western Conference Finals. We don't know that, but that's Chris Paul. I mean, 37 points in that clincher in Denver, which, by the way, Jokic should not have been ejected for that flagrant foul, should not have been a flagrant two. I understand it was a swipe, but that's a flagrant one in a postseason. But this Phoenix team just looks so good. And I'll even put it like this. If they play Utah, I limit their chances. If they play L.A., because I think Utah is the better defender in terms team-wise. That can shut down guys like Devin Booker. And Utah has Rudy Gobert to match up with DeAndre Ayton. They have Bogdanovich, Ingles, O'Neal to go against Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, Campaign, you know, all those guys. But Phoenix impressed me so much, and I think they're going to get a ton of rest. Hopefully they're not rusty once the Western Conference Finals starts. But if Chris Paul is on the floor, they win. I think so, and I think they have a legit chance regardless of who they play in the Western Conference Finals. But, of course, we're going to have to find out what happens when Chris Paul comes back on the floor. But speaking of Chris Paul, we talked about he's just one of the many players who have been missing postseason time with injuries. And a lot of it might have to do with the schedule. Just listen to these names that have missed significant time and are missing postseason action. Okay, we mentioned Kawhi Leonard, Kyrie Irving, James Harden. Anthony Davis, Jalen Brown, Joel Embiid, Kemba Walker, Jamal Murray, Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell. They've missed times with injuries. And you could really pinpoint this down to what the NBA has done in terms of their quick turnarounds from season to season. You got to keep that in mind. Because when you look at the bubble from last year, the NBA bubble, the Lakers were crowned in October. They were crowned champions, and they probably only about had about a month to get rest, a month, and training camp started, I want to say, beginning of December, and then the first set of games kicked off just a few days before Christmas, okay, so that is a very short turnaround for a lot of teams, for a lot of teams, and then when you look at this past season, what we're doing right now, the NBA Finals is slated to end in July. And then training camp will pick up once again in September. Okay, so again, that's only a two-month turnaround for certain teams. And I am all on LeBron James from when he was talking about the schedule flow, saying so many injuries are because of the scheduling. Because I talked about this all the way back in episode one when this podcast started. A quick turnaround for the NBA is only beneficial to those who are making money. Only those who are making money. And that has to do with the owners and marketers and, you know, even the Players Association. I'll lump them in with that. But this quick turnaround is not good for the NBA because you are paying the price. You're paying the price seeing it with all of these injuries. And that's really a problem in the NBA. 
because your market value are your stars. And if your stars aren't playing, then you're essentially losing business, essentially. I'm not going to say that. I'm not saying fans are totally going to not watch anymore because of stars. But when you want to see the game at its best, those names that I just mentioned are the names that bring this to the very best. That's essentially what it is. And I think once we get past the 2021-2022 season, hopefully, you know, scheduling will start to get back on track. The NBA Finals will end in June, and then it'll get a good three months rather than like a month and a half or barely even two months for certain teams to get themselves back into shape. That's really the biggest thing because star power is getting lost in the NBA. But of course, we can't talk about teams in the NBA if they don't have a leader. And we just found out yesterday that two teams are also in the market for a new head coach. The Wizards and the Pelicans join the Celtics, the Pacers, the Blazers, and the Magic with head coaching vacancies. Washington and Scott Brooks parting ways after five years. And then the Pelicans, which is absolutely ridiculous in my mind, fired Stan Van Gundy after one season in New Orleans, which is kind of ridiculous if you ask me. If you ask me, out of those six teams, Stan Van Gundy should be the one who kept his job the most. Because not only is he an experienced coach, but... Again, a depleted sort of New Orleans team that dealt with a lot of injuries. And basically, GM David Griffin said, if you're not making the postseason when I have basically the next LeBron James and Zion Williamson, then you're done. You're not going to coach here. So job security in New Orleans probably isn't the best right now. If you had to ask me out of those six teams, how would I rank them in terms of suitability? I would say the best option would be the Blazers. I think the Blazers probably, they probably have the most stability, if you ask me. Because, I mean, you've got one of the game's greatest players in Damian Lillard. One of the best shooters out there right now. And this was a Blazers team that's made the postseason in, I want to say, like, eight consecutive years. And yes, they haven't filled up to their expectations since they've gotten Damian Lillard. But that's all just off-season. You know, that's sort of in a general manager standpoint. You got to get some supporting cast with Damian Lillard, with C.J. McCollum. Because obviously what they've got around him didn't work. It just didn't work. And who even knows? Maybe Damian Lillard requests a trade. Maybe he requests a trade or he has a hand in picking the next head coach for the Blazers. We've heard that... Becky Hammond has been interviewed. We heard Mike D'Antoni has been interviewed. It'll be very interesting to see what the Blazers, more so Damian Lillard, says about the newest head coach. If you ask me number two who I think the best would be, I think the Celtics, not being personal anything like that, I think that'd be the second best option because I think you do have your stars set And it's really just constructing the team. Because the problem with the Celtics last year was just who they had around them. Brad Stevens was was fine. Like, even even since he got hired after Doc Rivers, people were calling him one of the best coaches. But the problem is he just didn't have the right pieces. You know, after Kyrie Irving left, he just didn't have the pieces surrounding Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, 
Kemba Walker, all those guys. So, I mean, we're hearing Chauncey Billups. We're hearing a lot of names. But I think if you ask me, Chauncey Billups would be the right pick for the Celtics. Then I would say probably the Pelicans would be the third best. Then I'd say the Wizards. Then I'd say the Magic. Then I'd say the Pacers. Because right now the Pacers are just a mess in Indiana. They're a mess in Indiana. They fired the guy who they thought was going to be the next Nate McMillan and was going to carry this Pacers team to the promised land, which they clearly didn't. But, I mean, the Magic, they kind of know what they're doing. They've got a young core. They at least know what they're doing. They know they're going young. We have no idea what's going on in Indiana. Who even knows if Malcolm Brogdon or Jeremy Lamb or Miles Turner is safe up there in Indiana? I mean, the the Wizards, they, they found their identity late in the year, and who knows if that stays the way it is with Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, if those two try and attack 2021-2022 together again. And then, obviously, the Pelicans, you got Zion Williamson. If you ask 9 out of 10 coaches, they would say that they want to coach Zion Williamson because that's a one-of-a-kind talent right there. But you know what? There's so much NBA news going on that sometimes you just got to sit back. Sometimes you got to sit back and watch all the drama and entertainment unfold. On now to the other league going through their postseason, and that is the NHL. They're down to their semifinals. By the time next week, we should know who will be competing for the Stanley Cup. We're down to the Final Four. It's the Montreal Canadiens versus the Golden Knights and the New York Islanders versus the Tampa Bay Lightning. Now, what's interesting is both series are tied at 1-1 right now. Both are at 1-1. Game 3 between the Islanders and the Lightning are tonight. In New York, then the Canadians and the Golden Knights will be in Montreal this upcoming weekend for their Game 3. And really the question is, between these two series, which one has a chance of going the longest? Because they're both tied at 1-1. And I think you have to look at what the games have been like so far in Game 2. Obviously, Game 1, first we start with, we'll dive into Montreal and Vegas. Game 1... Vegas comes out on fire, 4-1. to one. They ha- they score two in the second. Shea Theodore puts up two points, two goals, two assists. Riley Smith, two assists. And Marc-Andre Fleury is just doing Marc-Andre Fleury things. But for Montreal, they are answering the bell. Obviously, in Game 2, they take the 3-2 win. And that really was just all from the good start that they had. They got the good start that they had. They led... 2 nothing after the first period and really just made Vegas play catch-up. You got to keep in mind for Montreal, they came back from a 3-1 deficit versus Toronto. They sweep Winnipeg. They sweep Winnipeg, and then they take home a win in this game. So if you're doing the math, in the last nine games, Montreal's won the last eight of nine games. So you have to believe that. Game one was just a little bit of rust for them. 
because they swept and they were waiting for Vegas, who went into their series uh, six games against Colorado. But, I mean, when you look at the the numbers from these past two games, I mean, look at game one where Vegas dominated. When you look at Vegas, it just looked like they still had their energy carrying from their game six win when they beat Colorado. They still had that. And we've seen it in the past where teams get rusty with a long time off. But then when you look at game two, Montreal just looked like their regular Montreal self. I mean, they out hit the Golden Knights. They won more faceoffs. They blocked more shots. So I think I think Montreal is a very, you know, it's a team not to be taken lightly. I understand that statistically, in terms of points, they were the worst team among all postseason teams. But this is a good team. They've got a great goaltender in Carey Price. They've got great depth on their first and second line, you have to remember. I mean, Byron scoring that goal. You got Eric Stahl, Perry, and and on defense you have Edmondson, Gustafson, Petrie, which, by the way, totally looked like a psycho with those red eyes when he came back onto the ice. But I, I think Montreal can make this a very competitive series. I really think they can. I think the thing, though, is that they're going back to their home ice. And for Vegas, they just have to be able to not play from behind. We've seen that in recent series with Montreal. When they get out to that advantage, then you got to play from behind. And Montreal can zone in on on their defense. That's really the ultimate thing. Is just playing from behind is something you can't do versus this Montreal team. And we're seeing it so far. But who knows? Those questions could be answered by this upcoming weekend when they have Game 3. Now in the other series, when you look at what's going on, I totally would have thought the Lightning would just blow the doors off of the New York Islanders. And they did in Game 2. They did that in Game 2 when they won 4-2. But in Game 1, they lost 2-1. to one. And again, that's just like I talked about with the Islanders in that Bruins series. Is that this is just a well-disciplined team. It's a well-disciplined team that just locks down defensively and is not going to give you any kind of chance. That blue line defense, like I said, can even stop guys like Braden Point, like Stamkos like a high-powered offense like Tampa Bay. And then, let, let's also keep in mind who they got in net. Varlamov, one goal allowed in that game one. 30 saves on 31 shots. I mean, this was a guy who got basically pulled in the first series that they had versus the Pittsburgh Penguins. And then, because their backup gave up five goals in game one versus the Bruins. They put him back in, and he's just been riding riding high ever since. I mean, yeah, his one flaw was was giving up all, all these goals. Like, we saw such a high-scoring matchup with the Bruins and then in uh, game two a few nights ago. But you have to remember that the Islanders can score with some of the best. They can score with some of the best. And when you look at what they have, they're getting a ton of help. Jordan Bailey's playing great at the center spot. They've got Brock Nelson at the center spot. Paul Mary. And then on defense, you have Pollock, Pellick, Mayfield, Green, Dobson. This is a great 
defensive team. And also, I totally forgot Jordan Eberle and Sezikis, the two guys who basically made themselves into stars from that Boston series. But when you look at Tampa's side of things, really this team, their identity, you could see, was from Game 2. And it's a high-powered scoring team. I mean, Braden Point has been on fire. He scored in the first two games of this series. Then you had Palat scoring. You had Hedman scoring. I think the biggest thing for Tampa is just being able to use their speed and use use their physicality a little bit. I mean, the Islanders probably would be the more physical team, but as long as they're hanging around with the Islanders, I think this Lightning team should be able to come out of this series. I think if you ask me, tonight's Game 3 is going to be whoever wins it is going to win the series. That's that's ultimately what I think. I mean, when you look at the Nassau Coliseum, I know it's loud. I know it should favor the Islanders. Even Boston had such a hard time with that, with the energy. But this Tampa team is so much different. So much different. Ultimately, I would lean on them to come out of this series. But if we're getting back to the main point that we're trying to get at, which series could go the longest, I honestly think that Montreal and Vegas will go the longest. Because I think not so much an underestimating team is what Vegas is doing for Montreal, but I just think people are overlooking Montreal. And I don't mean Vegas. I mean like all the outside forces are saying, oh, Vegas has been the top team all year long. The Canadians just squeaked into the playoffs. They're the worst team. This is a much better team than people think. Much better team than people think. So I think that they would go the longest. Because you got to remember, Tampa's the defending champs. The defending champs for a reason. They know, they've basically been through every kind of series that there is. And I think they'll find a way to get past this Islanders team and find themselves back into the Stanley Cup. But you know, that's what happens when you get down to the Final Four. Very exciting games happen, and it'll only be a matter of time till we figure out the two teams who will vie for this year's Stanley Cup. We move now to baseball, and for the past couple of weeks, the biggest story surrounding the MLB has been the crackdown on substance abuse from pitchers and foreign substances have basically been banned from all pitchers no pitchers can use any kind of substance at all to help with their grip and we're seeing a ton of backlash we're seeing pitchers speak out against it we're seeing guys come down with injuries and it's just an absolutely chaotic situation from the past couple of weeks and I thought When better to talk about it than right now and to make it this week's edition of our segment known as Hot Takes. Now, some of the substances that have been on a crackdown has been spider tack and goop, I think, was the, the other one. And then, of course, others like, you know, pine tar that we've seen in the past. And... They just came out with a ruling. Commissioner Ron Manfred said that pitchers who have been found with a foreign substance 
will get a 10-game suspension. A 10-game suspension that will start this upcoming Monday. Monday, June 21st. And there can also be fines talking about. And we're also finding out that pitchers are and relievers are going to be checked more than once. And honestly, if you're just asking me, it's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. Not so much that they're doing a foreign substance crackdown, but the fact that it's going down in the middle of the season. The middle of the season, okay? This is what you call an overreaction. An overreaction to offenses basically being shut out by all pitching. I mean, look at what we talked about weeks ago when we had like seven, six or seven no-hitters. And everyone's talking about, oh, what's going on with all these offenses? Here's what's going on with this offenses. Pitchers are getting better. Pitchers are getting better. Okay? The fact that they go mid-season to do this crackdown is ridiculous. All right? You might want to wait until an off-season and decide, hmm, maybe we shouldn't allow foreign substances like this. And the fact that they're doing it now when it's gone on for years and years and years and years. We have seen pitchers and relievers in the past with pine tar, with sunscreen and all that. I I don't know what other substances there might be, but we have seen it so blatantly obvious. You know, look at Michael Pineda when he had the pine tar on the hand and his neck. Look at, I think it was Will Harris who had like pine tar on his forearm. You know, Craig Kimbrell had some on his hat, I remember. When watching him. Okay. So everyone does it. And it's just to get a better grip. It's to get a better grip. And it's not hurting anybody. I mean look. If pitchers don't have a grip. Let's say it's like April. And it's still like 50 degrees out in certain cities. Like Boston, New York and all of that. Pitchers don't have anything else. Besides that rosin. Or that rosin bag. Or pine tar or anything like that. So everyone does it. And if you don't have a grip, these pitches could go anywhere, and you could be hitting guys in the head and the face and all that. And you don't want that. You want to control the baseball and limit these kind of opportunities from happening. It's ridiculous. What is the big deal? Like I said weeks ago, this is on the hitters to learn how to not strike out. Okay? And look at the pitchers we have. This could be maybe the deepest field of starting pitching that we have. Obviously, Jacob deGrom has been phenomenal. We've seen Max Scherzer dominate in years past. We've seen Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. We've seen all these guys who are just some of the best pitchers that we've seen in recent memory. And we're telling them that you're too good that we're going to limit. We're going to limit your advantage, the one advantage that you have. And tell them, hey, it's time for you to adjust rather than our hitters. This is such an overreaction to where these offenses are from this past year. I mean, weeks ago we talked about how there are barely any teams hitting over 250. Now we're seeing like 10 to 8 and 7 to 5 scores, all because baseball and the MLB would much rather see the home run and see runs scored. Rather than good pitching. It's stupid. It's absolutely stupid in my mind to see what this MLB is doing. Why they're doing this now. 
Because I think, you know, I'm someone who believes that there shouldn't be any kind of cheating at all. But the timing of it all is what bothers me. Not only is it mid-season, but it's also you're doing this now in 2021 when this has been going on, when cheating has happened in baseball for 100-plus years. You look at sign stealing and all of that. Everyone's been doing it, okay? Everyone does it. And, you know, it was only about five or six years ago we were talking about, oh, guys can cheat, but just don't make it so blatantly obvious when you're talking about pitchers and using stuff to get a better grip. And now, all of a sudden, baseball wants to say, you know what? We invented this game in the late 1880s. And here in 2021, we now find it that no one should cheat in the game of baseball. Like, what What a hypocritical statement. What a hypocritical statement. And we're seeing the, we're seeing the price being paid from, we just saw it a few weeks ago, from the Rays ace who partially tore his UCL. And he blamed it on getting a better grip because he had to adjust his grip and throw it a little bit harder. So it's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of ridiculous. And obviously Garrett Cole, you know, we're seeing him back out of of things like that. But I mean, when Tyler Glass now says his UCL was torn because he had to change his grip because he doesn't have a foreign substance, let's let's not I'm not going to go completely crazy about it because I don't know if he's using a foreign substance or not. But I mean, we He's basically coming out and saying, I use the foreign substance to get a better grip. That's really all he was saying, which, like, it's probably not the best example to use. But, you know, I think Garrett Cole made a great point when he said, you know, talk with us rather than rather than just go out and make this decision. Like, have a conversation with these pitchers. Have a conversation and find a happy medium, okay? We're seeing Rich Hill saying that the MLBPA dropped the ball. I mean, we're seeing so many pitchers now come out and say that this is kind of stupid. And I agree that it's kind of stupid. Not so much that there's being a crackdown, but the timing of it. That's just the biggest problem for me is the timing. The timing of it. Because this is... Mid-season, you know, when teams are really starting to find their momentum, you know, we're almost at the all-star break, and some guys are really starting to find their control and get that momentum going, and now you're going to totally shut it out mid-season, almost mid-season in June? What a stupid move. What a stupid move, and it's all for marketing purposes, all marketing because MLB sees the great pitching and the poor hitting and says, you know what, let's flip-flop that because more people will pay attention if we have a ton of scoring versus great pitching. That's all it is. All it is. It's Rob Manfred taking the money way out. Not the easy way, the money way out. And finding a way to get offenses back on track. What if it's just a bad year for offenses, okay? 
What about that? That happens. That happens. We see like five no-hitters each season. And just because there are a few more from midseason, talk to the hitters. There are much more hitters than there are pitchers. Okay? Talk to the hitters and tell them, listen, if they're pitching well, it's on you to hit that ball. It's on you to know to hit a curveball 400 feet over a wall. Okay? That is the... It's so hypocritical what Mom, Rob Manfred is doing. Is that he's rewarding offenses because he knows that's what will put eyes to the TV and fans into the seats. He knows that's what brings people. It's offenses. Not seeing no hitters. Not seeing perfect games. Not seeing great pitching. It's hitting that he sees will bring people to the MLB ballparks. And me, I'm an old school guy. I love seeing pitching. I love seeing great pitching. I love seeing no hitters. I was literally one day removed back in elementary school from missing John Lester's no hitter in 2008. One game removed. And you don't think I still hold a grudge to that? It's insane. So I hope Commissioner Rob Manfred and the entire MLB looks itself in the mirror and says, what we did midseason making these pitchers adjust is an absolute shame. And I'll say it again. It's all for marketing purposes. on to our let's get local segment of the week and this one's going to be a little bit special because we will talk about uh, all four teams but two of them we're going to talk because there are some special anniversaries from this past week and we'll get into that but first we got to talk about what has been going on with the Boston Red Sox so far because they're still playing great they're 42 and 27 right now and they're only one game out of first place in that AL East and they're building a nice comfortable lead Away from the Yankees, away from the Blue Jays, and definitely away from the Orioles. I'll tell you that. But the one guy I really want to talk about is Christian Arroyo. I mean, look at what he's done in this series versus Atlanta. I mean, the go-ahead grand slam last night against Atlanta. I mean, talk about a guy. Remember, this is a bench guy. This is a bench guy. And really, that's kind of the only question position wise that the Red Sox have is just who's going to play second base and we've seen Kike Hernandez get there in depth but we're seeing Christian Arroyo I mean we're seeing Kike Hernandez in center Verdugo in left and then you know Renfro and Marwin Gonzalez switching the time but second base has been really just the it's been the biggest question of finding that consistent guy your everyday second baseman and Christian Arroyo might be that guy. He might be that guy. Because, I mean, he's had a tremendous stretch so far. Tremendous stretch here in the month of June. I mean, he's hitting 250. He's got 10 hits, 4 home runs, 14 RBIs. I mean, it's not terrible. I mean, we're, we're not asking Christian Arroyo to, you know, get up there with J.D. Martinez and Bogart's endeavors. No, we're not asking that. Arroyo just needs to be solid defensively. And I understand, like, it was a pinch hit 
and all that. But still, Arroyo is putting up some monster numbers, okay? He's putting up some pretty good numbers where I would feel confident about him being an everyday second baseman. I'd totally be confident putting him in that slot because, you know, when you look at this offseason, you know, you had a feeling that Arroyo was going to make the opening day roster, but you just didn't know where he was going to be. You didn't know where he was going to be. And then you see these signings like Kike Hernandez and Marvin Gonzalez. You're thinking, oh, they're going to be utility guys, or one of them is going to be the starting second baseman. Lo and behold, here comes Christian Arroyo putting up some great numbers. And, you know, I'm I'm just very impressed. I'm very impressed to see Arroyo doing this kind of stuff. Now, for the team in general, I think, you know, being one game out of first place, it's still good. I mean, when you look at their their 42 and 27, they're holding on to that first wild card spot right now. And if it wasn't for the Rays playing extremely hot, you know, remember they won I think 15 of 17 or 15 of 16 something like that just a little bit ago. Like if if you look at the National League or any other division, they'd probably be in first place, or at least tied for first place. You know, the White Sox are in first place in the Central. They're 43-25. and 25. The Athletics are 43-27, first place in the West. And then when you go to the National League, in the East, the Mets are 35-25. and 25. The Central, the Brewers, and Cubs are 38-30. and 30. And then in the West, the Giants are 43-25. Dodgers are... 41 and 27 so really in almost any other division they'd be in first place so they're still playing great and it's kind of surprising because we say week after week after week that the rotation just still isn't where it needs to be Rodriguez is losing his control Garrett Richards you know while he did have an RBI hitting last night he's still not the consistent guy Pavetta has been dinged up his past couple starts and Perez I mean the question is, does Chris Sale, if and when he returns to the Red Sox, does he go to the bullpen or does he get into that starting rotation? I think it really depends on where this Red Sox team is. If they really think that they're World Series contenders for this upcoming year, then they might take the chance and put them in the starting rotation. But remember, this is a guy who's been off of Tommy John. And before Tommy John was regarded as the best pitcher in baseball one of the best pitchers in baseball. So I think if you ask me, let's not rush Chris Sale into anything. I think, you know, give him give him maybe a small bullpen role if you want to bring him back for 2021. Just give him give him like a one-inning max for all his his matchups, okay? Cuz you don't want to overwork it. And we've seen with athletes in the past, if you give him enough rest, you know, like Kevin Durant from his torn Achilles, he got about 2 years of not playing if you give him the proper amount of time then he might come back to his old self but you know that's a torn Achilles this is a Tommy John it's completely different but let's just keep enjoying what the Red Sox have have done so far they're getting better at home they're now 20 and 17 after being I think like six games under 500 at Fenway so you know if the Rays have any kind of slip up the Red Sox just have to keep moving along and they'll find themselves back in first place yet again but a team that's also trying to get back into first place are the Patriots and we have to talk about what's been going on in training camp and really it's been the big story has been the reps at the quarterback position because the the Patriots have four quarterbacks 
on their roster right now. Cam Newton, Mac Jones, Jared Stidham, and Brian Hoyer. And it's been a little bit inconsistent in terms of the reps the past few days. We've seen reports that Cam Newton was a little depressed when he didn't get the first team reps ahead of Mac Jones, but then he came back the day after, and he was all happy-go-lucky, being his his old self. I think, I think for right now, I would pick Cam Newton as my starting quarterback. I think just Mac Jones still has a little bit to learn. You don't want to throw him into the lion's den. Unless Cam Newton is completely struggling, then you make that quarterback switch. But this is only training camp, all right? It's mandatory minicamp. Everyone's going to get about a month off. They'll come back in July, get ready for the preseason, and then eventually into the regular season. We won't really know the answer to who's going to be the guy under center for this New England team until we see some game action, whether that's in the preseason or when we get into the regular season. I think that's where the questions will get answered. But the other story in minicamp is the fact that Stephon Gilmore is sitting out as he's looking for a new contract. He's got $7 million on his salary for this upcoming year, but this is a guy who wants more or is just looking for any kind of answers about his future. And honestly, I kind of don't blame him because this is a guy who won Defensive Player of the Year not too long ago, and he's only making $7 million this year. So the Patriots better have answers for Gilmore. If if you're looking for a compete now, you keep Gilmore on your roster. And I think he's, he's proven himself to be worth more than $7 million this year. I think he's looking for a lot more, maybe in the price range of some of the top defenders, like a Von Miller or a Jalen Ramsey or someone like that. If he's getting that kind of money, then he might return. But I just think the Patriots need to answer that question because they've they've solved all their offseason problems. You know, they signed Jalen Mills, Hunter Henry, all those guys, Judon. But now you have your internal guys. You have to build that relationship with your internal guys. And Stephon Gilmore, I think... He's, he's showing himself to be, he wants to stay. I think he's shown himself that he wants to stay with this team and this organization. But the question is, are the Patriots going to make that happen? Because if they're not going to give him the money, then he's going to walk elsewhere. Kind of similar to the Tom Brady situation. If they're not going to give him the money, then he's going to go elsewhere. And this is a guy who, like I said, defensive player of the year. Just, I think, two years ago. Now he's sitting out because a defensive player of the year from two years ago wants to be paid like a defensive player of the year from two years ago. So the Patriots better have questions to be answered for Stephon Gilmore. They better have the answers because this Patriots team, if they want to contend now, you have to have Gilmore as your number one. If not, you're going to have to find a suitor who might take on Gilmore's contract who might sign him to a long term. But like I said, this is a special Let's Get Local, and we're talking about a couple anniversaries. This past week was actually the 10th anniversary, 10-year anniversary of the last Bruins Stanley Cup from 2011. And I just want to share some of my memories from that team. I'll I'll never forget Game 7. I was with one of my dad's good friends, and we were just sitting watching the game. 
and it was one nothing. We were feeling really good because you got to remember, Game 7 was in Vancouver, so it wasn't in front of the raucous garden crowd. But we were all sitting there. My dad says, here, take this air horn, and every time we score, sound it off. And this was like middle of the week, too. This was like, I want to say it was like a Tuesday or something like that. And so he would just say, "Take every time they score, they say, take this air horn, go out to the porch, and sound it. And keep in mind, like, we also, his friend also lives, he lived near a golf course. And luckily, this was at nighttime, so it wasn't disturbing anyone. But, like, this is middle of the week, too. And we're just blasting the air horn after the first one and the second one. And then, after they win and we head home, he's just say we're walking down the street. And he's just like, take this, sound it off, sound it off. And so I just blast it. I'm blasting it in the air. All the lights are turning on from the neighborhood houses. They're looking to see what's going on. And we're just looking at them just like, it's a Stanley Cup. What more do you want? Because it had been, I think, 39 years before 2011 that they last won the Stanley Cup. And, you know, what's funny is, like, you look at some of the guys that were on this roster. They weren't standout guys. You know, you had Nathan Horton was probably the biggest acquisition, but you had a... A, a rookie in Brad Marchand. You had a young Patrice Bergeron still, a young David Krejci, just a lot of young guys. And now 10 years later, you look at them, they're a bunch of old guys. And there's sort of that veteran presence. But, I mean, you had Sean Thornton, who was the, the bruiser. You had Zidane Chara, obviously. And then Tim Thomas was just absolutely unreal in net for the Bruins. And I think Boston has to be extremely lucky that they made a seamless transition from Tim Thomas and what he did during that 2011 postseason to now going to Tuka Rask, who's still regarded as one of the top goaltenders in the league. And you got to remember, Tuka was a backup. There wasn't even a question of him even getting the playing time. And now here he is. He's made two Stanley Cups in his career. He's yet to win one as a starter. But he's still regarded as one of the top goaltenders in the entire league. So, happy 10-year anniversary to the Bruins from their last Stanley Cup. But, of course, that's not the only anniversary. On this day, 13 years ago, we found out that anything was possible when, in 2008, the Boston Celtics won their first championship for the first time in 22 years. Now, some of my memories from that team, I just remember being very excited when hearing about the Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett trade, because it was that year that I really started paying attention to basketball and the Celtics in general. And I saw that this team just was really, really bad. And then I heard that they could get one of the the top picks. You know, they were slated, projected to be the second pick in the NBA draft. And when you're looking at that, that was Kevin Durant. That was Kevin Durant, who was the second pick, who ended up with Seattle. But then when they were drawn the fifth pick, you could have thought the sky was falling, essentially, for Boston because they had their future basically ripped away from them. And then all of a sudden you get some established future Hall of Famers to play with Paul Pierce. You get Kevin Garnett. You get Ray Allen. Put them with a young Kendrick Perkins, a young Rajon Rondo, bring in Eddie House, bring in James Posey, Bring him in with Leon Poe, Tony Allen. I mean, 
this was a probably the first team that I fell in love with for basketball. This was the first Celtics team that I really grew accustomed to. And why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be with this team? You know, going from like 22 wins to 67. But then in that postseason, you know, going seven games with Atlanta, seven with Cleveland, six with Detroit. You know, I kind of had this feeling that like this team is better than that. This team is better than that. But, you know, they still had to make it difficult. And then they end up beating the Lakers. And the funny story with um, that series was the Game 6 blowout. I had only seen the first half. And I had developed some really bad stomach cramps. So, like, it was physically, you know, I wasn't able to, like, stay up. I just went straight to bed. So I didn't get to see the, the championship celebration in time. But watching it the next morning just made me feel good, put a smile on my face, which I was totally fine the next morning. Let's keep that in mind. The stomach cramps went away. But they were just really severe that I couldn't watch the rest of the game. But definitely some good memories to look back on. I always love going back and watching some classic highlights, regardless of if, if it's Bruins, Celtics, or anything in general. So happy anniversary to the Bruins and the Celtics from their last championship teams. And as always, to finish our show, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And our LOL this week comes from a man who made some comments and maybe affected the rest of his playing career just for saying that he would not play for a certain Super Bowl winning team. So without any further ado, this week's LOL moment of the week goes to... Le'Veon Bell. Now, let me paint the picture for you about Mr. Bell. On social media just this past week, about a couple days ago, responding to a comment, Bell said he would retire before playing for Andy Reid again. Because if you remember, Le'Veon Bell this past year, released by the Jets, signs with the Chiefs, barely gets any playing time. Okay? So... I mean, part of it could be a little bit of frustration that, you know, I'm one of the, I was one of the best running backs in the league and I'm not even good enough to be the starter on a Super Bowl team on the back-to-back AFC champions. I'm kind of, I'm kind of baffled because this, this was a guy, Le'Veon Bell, who basically threw away one year of his career, which was kind of the prime if you think about it. Remember the story that he started with Pittsburgh and he formed the Killer Bees with Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown. And because he wanted a new contract and wants to get paid more, he sat out an entire season. And this was like the year after. The year after he probably had like a career year. And so he just sat out the rest of his, his contract. He signs with the Jets for much less money than he was looking for. I want to say it was like a three-year million deal with the Jets. So he only got like $17 million a year. And then he turns out to be a disappointment there, which, I mean, part of it is through no fault of his own. 
But then he goes ahead and signs with the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, that'd be your dream. I mean, regardless of if you're playing or not, if the Kansas City Chiefs came up to me and was like, we want to sign you to make you a part of our team, I would say, yes, sir, I'll be the water boy if I have to. Credit, I'd never make the NFL anyway. But if anyone asked me, I totally would have I totally would have said yes. But then keep in mind what he did. He only played in nine games. He started two, and he rushed for barely just over 250 yards and two touchdowns. And he didn't even play in the AFC Championship or the Super Bowl. So he's basically saying that I would rather get starting time on a crappy team versus be a backup and be inactive for a Super Bowl team. I mean, gosh. And then also keep in mind, the next day he said he wish he didn't have, he wish he didn't have said it out loud on social media, but he's not regretting what he said at all. And let's just keep in mind, Andy Reid is one of the best coaches of all time. One of the best. I think, if not top 10, just outside the top 10. And he's won a Super Bowl. Okay, and this Kansas City team has been absolutely unreal. And you have to keep in mind what Le'Veon Bell entered when he signed with Kansas City. This was already halfway through the year, and the Chiefs were starting to find their their roster momentum. You know, they they lost Damian Williams, but they had a great draft pick in Clyde's Edward Hilaire, who was taking the bulk of the carries. And then you sign Le'Veon Bell, and... He just wasn't, he isn't the same guy that he was in Pittsburgh. So he's basically saying that, you know, Andy Reid, oh, he's this great coach, not in my eyes. He's a little overrated. I mean, what a joke for Le'Veon Bell. Like I said, this guy sat out a whole year just to get like $5 million or $10 million less than what he was commanding for on his market. And he probably, thanks to that, threw away his career, maybe, not just from what he said, but for sitting out that season. He threw, we don't know what his conditioning was like when he was sitting out that year he was in Pittsburgh, that final year with the Steelers, but he threw away that year, which was probably the last prime of his career. He doesn't have a great year in New York. He doesn't have a great career in New York, and he joins a Chiefs team mid-season who already had their roster and their depth in intact. You know, there were no guarantees that he was going to be the starter right away. And so Andy Reid, taking the high road, just said, I hope nothing but the best for Le'Veon in his future. All right? And let, let's just also keep in mind what he said on Twitter. This was four days ago. I said what I said, and I don't regret at all what I said. For those who have a personal problem with me because of what I said, that's fine. You have your right. Just understand, I also have my right for how I feel about my personal problem with dude because of what he said to me. So it kind of sounds like, you know, he was promised something that he never got, which was like a starting role, possibly, or something like that. But, <laughs> I mean, it, it it's, kind of, it's kind of crazy that Le'Veon Bell would much rather be on a, a team like the Jets again versus being on the Chiefs or playing for... Andy Reid. So, Le'Veon, let's hope you get signed before the regular season gets underway because people might say what you just said about Andy Reid 
ruined your career. But until then, saying you won't play for Andy Reid makes you this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak. <laughs>